Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group, who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. In this week's episode, we talk about the protests that have swept the nation and the East End in the wake of the death of George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man who died on May 25th after being arrested by police outside a shop in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So hey everyone, today is June 5th, 2020, and we all know there's one story that we're pretty much focused on this week. And it is. It's not COVID-19 anymore, is it? Not for this week. What's our big story this week? We have police brutality protests on the East End. Yep, that's it. For today, we have speaking Joe Shaw, executive editor of the Express News Group. Howdy. Catherine Georgie Manu, publisher of the Express News Group. Brendan J. O'Reilly, features editor of the Express News Group. And Alec Jafferda, did I do that right? Yeah. Okay. Alec is our, our new loyal intern from Cornell, who we sent out and about to cover the protest this week. And my name is Annette Hinkle. I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. So I thought it would be interesting to bring Alec in on this conversation because he's the one who's been covering the protest. So Alec, I was just curious if you wanted to share some of your thoughts about what you've seen this week going out and covering the first rally that was held on Tuesday in Bridgehampton. Initially, when I first heard that like this had happened and George Floyd had been murdered after the other two killings we had in America, Ahmad Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, I never thought the protests would reach the East End. I think we're a pretty sheltered community. And in the summer, I think the white elitism of the Hamptons kind of is at its peak. And so I did not think we'd have protests on the East End. And so when I saw this on Instagram, that's when I first heard of it, that there was a protest scheduled for Tuesday in Bridgehampton, I was a little shocked. But after going and seeing everything, it made perfect sense. People are really angry. And on the East End, a lot of people were describing to me experiences of racism that they've they've had themselves and they've had their friends have had. And so I think the conversation nationally is not just about police brutality, but it's about white supremacy and systems of racism. And I think that that conversation is especially relevant to the East End. Like after thinking about it, it's not a shock at all that the protests reached out here. If anything, they're very relevant out here. Let me ask you, Alec, what, what was the feeling? You've mentioned anger. Is it more complex than that? No, it's, it's very complex. I mean, there's a catharsis um, involved in this and especially when it's a protest that's being there were certainly people of color very much represented at the protest but this was really a, an entire community coming out to make a statement but i'm curious what the feeling was from protesters i made it a point in my story to mainly talk to black people um at the protest because it's kind of their movement and it's it's their story the white majority that was there was really there in allyship and i think for a lot of those people, they were protesting because they were either fearful for their friends or they felt the need to come together as a community and stand together against racism nationally and on the East End. 
But I think for the Black community there, not only was there fear, because there was a lot of fear about the future, but anger over the past, very justified anger. But there was also sadness. People were crying. We've covered a lot of actions here, you know, um, peace movements and things like that. And usually you, you end up seeing like the same 30 or 40 people that show up. But this seemed a little bit, a lot different, actually. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about just the sheer, the sheer volume and if it seemed to be sort of a, a surprise to the organizers as well. Yeah. Um, so I talked to the police chief who was there and he, at the beginning of the protest, said he wasn't surprised. But earlier, the police had indicated that they expected 100 to 200 people to go. And I know crowd sizing is like an impossible game to estimate. I would say it was probably closer to a thousand people that were there. The streets were filled. Um, and Montauk Highway is a big street in Bridgehampton. In terms of why so many people were there, I think that's like a twofold reason. I think on one hand, people are angry and people have been waiting so long for change. And this is kind of the moment. And I think the allyship was also there from the majority white community for another reason. And that's like a political science theory and it's the collective action problem. So we're in this time of coronavirus where no one really has that much to do. Um, and people are kind of paying more attention to social media and what's happening around them. And so when these events started surfacing, um, they gained a lot of national traction and attention. And I think that's also why. So people had less to do. And so they came out to protest. Um, that's probably for the better that they came out to protest. So today um, in Sag Harbor, there's supposed to be a protest from 12 to 3. Um, and that protest is one that's being organized by a youth movement. What was the demographic like in terms of age at the Bridgehampton protest? Yeah, it was definitely mixed. Um, people of all ages were there, honestly. A lot of high schoolers and college students. And again, that's not surprising considering the fact that this really gained traction like on Instagram. The video of George Floyd spread on Instagram. And so I think the like push towards the need to protest came from social media. You think that this is a, is this an outgrowth of the Trump administration? Like everything coming to a head? I would be careful about that because police brutality has a long history in the United States, stretching back to like when Giuliani was mayor in New York City to even before then, pre-civil rights to like 1880s lynchings. I think Donald Trump contributed to it by not doing anything to support people protesting. I think there's also a large sentiment that he's like a, just not for the Black community or for helping people that are victims of police brutality. He's very pro-law and order. And so I think he contributed to these riots, but I don't think it's entirely because of Donald Trump's three and a half years in office. I have to say, Alec, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but in scanning the photographs from the event, I was struck by the fact that there weren't more political signs in the sense of pure politics. It was really, this really was about the issue of police brutality and racism and institutional racism. It, it really didn't vary much from, from that message. Am I right about that? Completely. It's not a partisan issue. Um, it's kind of become a human rights issue in America, um, the issue of police brutality. Um, I took a class this semester at Cornell that was called the Black Radical Tradition, where we studied the history of Black thought and Black radicalism. And one of the things our professor pushed us to think about was whether or not 
police brutality against African-Americans, killings against African-Americans in this country could be classified as genocide. Um, and so I don't have the answer to that. I think most people do not have the answer to that, but I think it does make us think of this more as a human rights issue and that's nonpartisan. And so I think people realize that, that this was something that was above politics. And I think we also saw that with the letter from James Mattis um, and Lisa Murkowski supporting that letter. It's, it's nonpartisan. I, I'm also struck by, you touched on it, that um, the organizers of this event and so many of the participants were young people. Um, and I feel like one of the sources of frustration that may be feeding these protests is that the young people are clearly you know, spilling into the streets to, to try and voice their, their anger and frustration that change needs to happen. But you're not the ones in charge. The, the generation that's in charge isn't getting that done. And, and I feel like that's one of the friction points. It, it's a generational difference. Um, and I think your, your generation is so much more attuned to these issues and willing to speak up about it in a way that I think is fueling the anger and frustration, which I don't mean that in a bad way. I just think it's the byproduct of you having so much passion as a generation. I think more important than that is diversity in elected office. I think that's more of a reason you're seeing frustration and tension. I think the U.S. House is representative, like there is a representative number of African-Americans to the population in the House, but the Senate's far off, um, as are most state assemblies and state senates. The movement really wants to keep the momentum going, and I think that's why there's so many of these things. You see night after night people coming out on the streets in the city. Do any of us think that we could get protest fatigue? I think, Joe, you had mentioned this the other day in one of your emails. What are the risks and the benefits of keeping the protest ball rolling, do we think? My concern is that protests by their nature are about channeling anger and rage and making a statement. And protests are by their nature turning that anger into something positive. And I worry that over time, when all we have is protest, it starts to, to turn. And um, I feel like one of the things that's frustrated me in the last couple of days is that there really hasn't been any substantive action of any kind on any level to address any of these issues with the exception of the arrests and the charges filed in the, in the individual cases, which I do think were largely the result of, of the public's attention to those cases. And um, it certainly heightened our interest, but I'm not seeing a lot of action and not even a lot of conversations about what that action might be. I, I worry that the protests are going to start to have less of an impact because of that. And I also worry, quite frankly, that we haven't seen a lot of counter protests. And I think it's interesting that we haven't seen a lot of counter protests so far. But if that begins, uh, we're going to have a whole nother level of, of issues to deal with. And, and uh, I, I, you know, I frankly worry about that. Well, one of the things about counter protests is this case seems to transcend people's politics, whereas in a lot of past shootings, we've seen some people take the sides of the police, some people take the side of the victim, some people say there's too much gray area for me to go out and protest this as police brutality. This is a case where everyone who says, I don't agree with the protests, or, I, or the looting's bad, the rioting's bad, um, or, or even saying that the death of Mr. Floyd is being overshadowed by the looting, 
they all agree that the cop was at fault. He should be charged. Some of them say murder unequivocally. And I've seen retired cops say that. I've seen current cops say that. We saw the East Hampton Town police chief condemn the death of Mr. Floyd in police custody in a letter uh, that he released on Thursday. When has that ever happened before? I think where the pushback would come from is the fact that I think the protests are about more than George Floyd, um, a lot more than George Floyd. It's really about police brutality and white supremacy. I think that's where the pushback would come from, from people saying, we don't have white supremacy in America. We don't have police brutality in America. I think some conservative, more right-wing extremists would latch onto that ideology and protest that. That being said, I don't think there will be counter protests. Um, I think the movement's a little, the movement for or against police brutality is a little, it's too strong. And I think people would be fearful of coming out and counter protest. In terms of the outcome for the protests, a lot of people acknowledge the fact that they don't have the solution, they don't have the direct policy solution. But um, for people of color, like a very fair point is it's not their responsibility to come up with the solutions to police brutality and white supremacy in America. It's the responsibility of the white majority who created the systems of police brutality and white supremacy. I don't think these protests have all the answers and I don't know if they'll continue with the same energy, but I don't think they're going away until we see something. So with us today, we have Willie Jenkins, who was one of the organizers of the Bridgehampton rally last Tuesday. And we brought Willie on because we want to hear some of his thoughts about the whole spectrum of this issue. We've seen a lot of um, a lot of protests or rallies out here, and a lot of times it's our friend Lisa Votino who is at every good cause rally out here. And a lot of times it's the same, maybe 30 or 40 people that tend to show up at a lot of these rallies. But the thing that happened on Tuesday that you helped to organize with Lisa and Bridgehampton was just a whole other realm. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your impressions of how the rally went on Tuesday. And was it what you expected? It, was, it wasn't what I expected. didn't expect that many people. I expected a couple hundred people, maybe a few hundred people, because of how strongly everyone felt about the issue. But the influx of people and the amount of support that we got uh, pleasantly surprised me. It was so good to see people out there just all in, in one feeling the same way, as I feel like everybody should feel that way about it. I was super, super happy to see everybody crying out in one voice, people standing up finally not everybody stands up so as you said earlier you know you see the same 40 people out there at at these protests and you know we all you know talk about it we all go to these protests we say hey this is wrong and you know a lot of people are scared to speak up but they won't actually get out there and do the groundwork and that's that's not good that's kind of like you know i'm saying kind of productive because you're kind of putting forth uh the idea it's okay to be silent Put it on Facebook, but as long as you're not publicly seen out there, you know, holding up a sign, you're not looked at as badly. We kind of smashed that stereotype and, um, you know, that misconception uh, because it pushes the issues forward to, to the forefront when we're out there in the street and people see, hey, we can't deny this. There's over a thousand people here. These people are out here. They believe in it. The funniest thing I, I noticed, you know, when you guys post an online article, not you particularly, but any online article from a paper all the comments 
pretty much 80% of the comments are negative comments from people who aren't brave enough or they don't feel as strongly as they claim they do. And if they felt that way, they should be out there counter-protesting or speaking their mind. I read the comments and I used to get upset by them, but I laugh because I'm like, you're not doing, these people step from behind the shadows and look what they did. And you're in the newspaper comments on a, on a, on the internet. So I just find it funny and it's laughable and, and you, you can notice it. You, you'll, you see it yourself. I know, I know you guys look and see it, so. Yeah, I read the comments on my last article about the Tuesday protest and they were pretty insane. I must tell you, anonymous commenting is a is a constant conversation we have, and um, whether or not it has any value at all in some cases. But I think it's a great point that 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 it's a very different thing to hide behind an anonymous screen name and and make statements and to come out in the street and and, and be there. I I want to ask you, Willie. There's a narrative out there, and particularly among critics, that a largely white community like like we have here is not the place for a protest like this. I want to give you a chance to respond to that. But well, that's a, a fairy tale and false propaganda. I didn't even know I was from a white community till the sixth grade. I grew up around all black people in Bridge Hampton. It's an all black community. Now, now so no, because of gentrification. My mother lives in Bridge Hampton. My whole family's from Bridge Hampton. There's a whole rich community. When we have Bridge Hampton Day, look at the pictures on my Facebook from Bridge Hampton Day. And then, tell me that there's not a community out here. And half the, half the people from Bridgehampton live down south now, so they can't even make it up here for Bridgehampton Day and still look at how many people it is and tell me there's not a need for it. They just don't want you to know that there's communities out here. They, they know where they are. They stay away from it. They keep it quiet. They don't want people to know there's black people in the Hamptons. Not saying it's that, you know, much of a secret, but when they talk about the Hamptons, they don't say, you know, they don't, they don't talk about, you know, uh, the Turnpike, uh, Hampton Court, the Crossway. Uh, narrow lane. They don't talk about this is all black people that live there. You know, now more so there's, you know, Spanish and, and white people have bought up houses, which is fine. It is what it is at this point. If you sell your house, you sell your house. But let's be very clear. When I was going to school, when I lived there, all black. It was no white people. White people would drive by, go to Sac Harbor or East Hampton. It wouldn't even stop down, down where we lived at. And it is what it is. It's just a fact. So that doesn't make any sense. We feel ostracized in our own community because you see the red line. You see the red line. We grew up seeing the line. Like you can literally see, wow, this is where you cross is all black people. This is where you cross is white people. We all go to the commons. And when you go to the commons, everybody goes there. We all see each other. We act like it's no problem. But in between the commons, we don't go on Main Street. Like we don't hang out on Main Street. You ever notice that? Like we don't go to those stores. Those stores don't pertain to us. There's no problem with the stores. There's no problem with the store owners. It's just not a thing. It's like, that's not, the commons more so have stores to where, okay, everybody shops at these, you know, uh, grocery stores, things like that. But then use like art galleries, things like that, that, you know, we don't have any, we don't own any stores up there. It's a cultural thing where those stores, we don't really particularly have an investment in or a reason to go to. Or they don't contribute back during Bridgehampton Day. None of the people on contribute to their own community on Bridge Hampton Day, where it's in the newspaper. It's known. It's like, it's not a secret thing. We put it in the newspaper. We say, we're having Bridge Hampton Day for the Bridge Hampton community. Not one of the stores says, oh, wow, that's awesome. 
I'm not gonna lie. Starbucks reached out, but Starbucks is a different animal. There's a big corporate store where black people, white people, everybody goes to that. You know, Starbucks can come. We're not talking about big corporate stores that everybody goes to. We're talking about local stores, mom and pop stores, or stores that are owned by people from the community. And most people that own the stores aren't even from the community. I wanted to follow up on Joe's question, and it's very similar. But so I was in a Facebook group yesterday for a community that borders the East End. And people were proposing a Black Lives Matter, George Floyd rally in that community. And the responses were, well, we're concerned about looting, which seemed a bit extreme because there has been no looting or rioting uh, on Long Island and any of these protests. But another objection people brought up was, well, I don't see why we have to have that protest here because we don't have racism here. And other people were shocked to hear that, uh, but a lot of members of the community said, well, well, why would we need to have a George Floyd protest? There's no racism here. Do you think there's areas on Long Island where racism doesn't occur? No, and I'm not saying that, you know, trying to hurt anybody's town image or anything like that. I've experienced racism in several different places. I don't think that it's like, oh, this town is racist. I think there's people in the town that are racist. You know what I mean? It gives that image, though, if I was like, I had this experience here, then it gives that stigma to the town. So I'm going to try to be as fair as possible. Like, I've experienced the most racism I've ever experienced on Long Island was in Sac Harbor. But I don't want to come out and be like, oh, Sac Harbor's a racist place. Because I know great people in Sac Harbor. I know great leaders in Sac Harbor. I know great families in Sac Harbor that aren't racist. So I don't want to put that stigma on them. But it's like, I feel safer in my my area, not, not safer unless somebody's going to hurt me, but like, no, I'm not being judged. I'm not being looked at. I've been called a nigger in Sag Harbor. I've been called um, all kind of uh, thugs. Uh, I've literally heard people say, oh, they're from Bridgehampton. We're right next to each other. I've seen the police hurt my friend, spray us with mace for no reason, just because we were standing there. You tell somebody that story, if you're from Bridgehampton, you believe the story because you know. If you're from Sac Harbor, oh, that didn't happen. Those guys aren't like that. They were just doing it. No, I, I saw. I was there. Like, they weren't just doing that. They were being racist. Those particular people. You know, like I said, everywhere needs it. Bridgehampton needs it. And like I said, I'm from a black community, but the outside part of Bridgehampton isn't black. It's only the part where I'm from. There's parts that people look at you funny. People come from the other side. They're like, why are you here? I live here. Did you know that or did you bother to find it out? Nobody ever asked in the 90s or before, before the gentrification happened, why Bridgehampton School was 90% black. So let's ask that question. So if there's no racism here, why did I find out that there's kids from Bridgehampton that I never knew, never met before in my life? And Bridgehampton's a super small town. You know everybody. But these kids would be like, I'm from Bridgehampton. I'd be like, no, you're not. I never saw you my whole life. They'd be like, I go to private school. And then I found out mad I've never seen them. I didn't know why they go to private school. Why wouldn't they go to public school? Everybody else goes to public school. That doesn't really happen so so much in East Hampton and South Hampton like that. Kids go to school there. But because Bridgehampton has such a strong black community and they all go to that school, parents have the kids go to other schools. And you find it out. You know what I'm saying? Like you find it out when you live there and you're paying attention to it. But if you're not paying attention to it, it's like a puff of smoke. You don't know. It wouldn't be that way if the Parents that had the kids in 
from Virginia, sent them to Virginia and not Stella Maris or, um, you know, and I'm not just saying there's not parents that send these kids there for the education or the opportunity. I'm sure some of them, that is their motive. But I've seen where their uh, kids have told me their self, out their mouth, yeah, they didn't want us to go to Virginia because of the black kids. Let me ask you a question, Willie. As an organizer of this event, I think you and Lisa Vitino were both aware in advance that there was a rumor that went around in a text that circulated um, the day of the event that was designed to scare people away from it. It suggested that there was violence that was being planned. And I thought it was on its face ridiculous because the suggestion was that there were incendiary devices placed in bushes along the, the route of the march and things like that. And I know that the text singled you out and, and said some, some pretty awful things about you that, that some of them were certainly not true. Um, is there, a, as a, as a planner of an event like this, I suspect that, that that's something that comes up all the time when you're trying to plan a protest. There are forces out there that are trying to counter that, that protest before it even gets off the ground. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to where my age has calmed me to where I can just laugh at it now. Whereas I feel like if I was younger, I would have been so bad. I would have, probably went to the stores and be like, why are you doing this? But it's like, I understand their fear. You fear things you don't know about or understand. Like I said, they don't personally know me. So could somebody break their store? Have they been watching the news and seeing a bunch of riots? Yes, they have. I'm not upset with them about that fear. My only real problem, which did bother me was, you know, you didn't have to slander me. You could have you could have did your due diligence and looked me up and said, okay, he has a record, but has he tried to turn his life around? My record, first of all, my record isn't even nothing like, it's not like I was arrested for drugs or anything like that, nothing like that. But it's, you know, it's one thing to, to put that out there without any context. Hey, Willie has been holding community events and doing this. I've been in the paper numerous times for the good I've been trying to do. And I don't want any props for it, but if this is out there, why can't that be out there? It's, it's give me a fair shake is all I'm saying. For you as an organizer, building something like this and having something be the kind of success that the protest this week was with the number of people that was just stunning is so difficult and destroying it is so simple because it really just takes a, 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 an anonymous message going around that raises fears and is rooted in the same racism that you're trying to fight. That's got to be frustrating as an organizer that, that it's, it's a tenuous thing to try and set something like this up. And you're always in danger of someone coming out of the, out of the woodwork. And again, anonymously, I think there's a theme there and, and just wrecking it. And, and I think it's great that, that it didn't work this time. It, it is frustrating. Luckily. I had a good track record prior to where the police, I've worked with them on protests before and they're like, but nothing has happened. I've never had anything happen at a protest. I've, we, we go about it the right way. Even when people ask me advice about protests, we say, hey, you want to get the police involved. You want to talk to them. You want to make sure you guys are working together. So th there's no miscommunication. We don't give them the chance to have that fear. We're praying for peaceful things, but we get, hey, just in case something happens, let's have these officers be, be ready to, you know, on the outsides of the stores. We didn't just, you know, say, 
F the police. We're going to go march and there's nothing they can do about it and yell in their faces and doing, hey, can we speak to you guys? Can we um, speak to your community liaison? Can we, um, can we, can we, do we need any permits? Do we, we had that communication. So, so that helped out a lot. You know, when we, when I first started protesting, we didn't ask anybody permission or nothing. But it came with experience that we talked to the police while we were there, and then we got better and better and better. And then you see the outcome of what happened Tuesday, which was 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 awesome. And I'm, I'm very humbled by everybody that came out. What do you want? What do the protesters want? What is the outcome that that the protesters are looking for? Honestly, I even said yesterday, and I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, but it's like kind of a weird question. You know what I'm saying? If I could be candid and honest, like when when somebody asked me that the other day, they're like, "Why are you here? What? <laughs> like, are you talking? You know what I'm saying? Like that—that that is the excuse me. That's the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life. Please ask that question to the people who aren't there. You have a heart. You have a soul. You know what's wrong. You know what's right. All of you know why we're out there. You know. You don't even ask me. Forget that question. Skip that question. I know why you guys are out here. I was wrong. You're upset. You want the right. You want the right thing to, to start happening. You know that already. So just don't even ask me. Just say we know why they're here. Let's ask the people who aren't here. Why aren't you supporting this? This is the right thing. Let's go to knock on doors of people that are in these stores and they're not coming out. This is right. This is America. People have the right to live, the right to liberty, the right to breathe. Why aren't you here? Please ask those other people. Sometimes asking dumb questions gets really smart answers, which is what we just had. So, <laughs> You know what I mean? It's 2020. This is not 1992 where we saw a grainy video of uh, Ronnie King getting um, beaten. This is uh, my cell phone uh, camera is literally almost movie quality. To watch that man die like that, it was nothing anybody could say. But this one is like, man, ain't no excuse in the world. And we are done and I'm tired and I'm sick of you telling me the grass is not green um, and you're telling me it's blue, but I'm looking at this green grass. When I was at the protest, I was talking to a lot of people who were leaving Chance and the movement. And one of the people was Trayvon Jenkins. He's 19. He's in the synagogue in the reservation. Uh, I went to high school with him. He was talking a lot about, and a lot of people were talking about how the large majority of the white crowd there, he was hoping it would wake people up in the Hamptons to the very white supremacist systems that exist in the Hamptons. You were kind of talking about them earlier with how we clearly have black and white communities, how we have black and white school, like some black and white schools. Um, how some stores are really not catering to black communities. And he was kind of hoping that these movements would wake even the white people at the protest up and wake people up into their own privilege. Do you kind of hope that that could be an outcome on the East End from these movements? I feel like, yes, I've never seen it like this. I've never felt it like this. Um, the fact that all the you know white people, uh, Asian, Spanish, all races are coming out together, but especially white people are coming out in such vast numbers and speaking out and it's like enough. It's like if if white people's had enough, then you know you messed up. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. Maybe you know the world needed that to happen to where this change could come about and 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 I, I'm so so um sorry to his family and 
that we have to experience that as children have to go through that, as family have to go through that, and it, and it sucks. And that's why we say his name. Willie Jenkins, I, I think I speak for all of us when I say uh, I admire your passion and I admire your commitment and I just appreciate the work you're doing on the front lines uh, and I really appreciate you joining us and, and sharing your perspective on this uh, important moment. Uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you for giving me a, a, a platform to speak out with you guys. It's all the people that came out that are important. It's the cause that's important. You know, it's for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, specifically this year. But everybody, you know, Eric Garner, you know what I'm saying, uh, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Sean Bell. It's more than that. It's about them. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly NPR show, Jazz Inspired, airing locally on WPPB 88.3 FM, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.